everyone, and welcome to another amazing episode of The Joy of Being for busy working moms and women in business and beyond who are seeking to unplug from their worries and overwhelm to light up with insight and joy. I, your host, mum, and effortless lifestyle coach, Marina Pearson, talk to transformational professionals, business owners, and creatives about what it really takes to have a business and life you can truly enjoy. And remember, you can find me on Instagram at Marina Pearson or my Facebook group, The Joy of Being. And if you'd like a more personalized touch to live a stress-free life, then why not find out more about The Joy of Being Retreat, an intimate four-day profound experience at a luxury venue in Javier, Spain, where you get to experience your inner calm and peace of mind by slowing down and making space. To find out more, email me at marina marinapearson.com with Joy of Being Retreat in the title. So on this week's show, I'm super excited to be interviewing the infamous Dr. Laura Markham. She creates aha moments for parents of kids from babies through teens. She trained as a clinical psychologist at Columbia University, but she's also a mom. So she understands kids and parents. She translates proven science into the practical solutions you need for the family life you want. Dr. Lenora Markham is the author of three best-selling books, Peaceful Parent, Happy Kids, How to Stop Yelling and Start Connecting, Peaceful Parent, Happy Siblings, How to Stop the Fighting and Raise Friends for Life, and Peaceful Parent, Happy Kids Workbook. The founding editor of AhaParenting.com, Dr. Laura Markham also serves as a parenting expert for many websites. She makes frequent TV and radio appearances and has been interviewed for thousands of articles by publications as diverse as The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, Real Simple Newsday, Men's Health, Red Book and Parents Magazine. Over 130,000 parents subscribe to her weekly email. Dr. Laura Markham's relationship-based parenting model, which she calls peaceful parenting, has helped thousands of families across the US and Canada find compassion, common sense solutions to everything from separation anxiety and sleep problems to SAS talk and cell phones. She lives in Brooklyn, New York, and is the proud parent of two terrific young adults who were raised with peaceful parenting. And I am so honored to have done actually the 12 week course that she provides. Um, and it's been absolutely transformational. To give you an understanding of what I mean by that, I've gone from uh, feeling deeply insecure about spending time with my son to being able to play with him and creating special time. Uh, playing with him was deeply uncomfortable for me for quite a while. And it still is, but I now know that it's actually his language to connect with me so uh, there's more empathy there's more connection there is more um, willingness to cooperate we're working as a team more than as a you know I'm right you're wrong and it's really revolutionized the way I see my little one he's only four and any of you that have four-year-olds or you know a very strong-willed child as he is you'll understand that <laughs> there can sometimes be a little bit of contention so we talked about discipline, we talked about why that doesn't work, we talked about um, how we can actually uh, raise kids in today's society when we don't even have that much help, and so much more. So if you are at your wit's end, <laughs> which you might be, and you want to know how to parent with joy, then this episode is going to be an enormously helpful one for you. Enjoy. So I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Laura Markham here today. And 
uh, having been uh, a mama that's done her course, I am, it's just been such a profound experience for me that I'm really, really glad we got on here today to talk about um, calm parents, happy kids. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Delighted to be with you, Marina. So, Laura, like I'm sure there's a lot of um, parents and mums, you know, and listeners who, who are asking the question, um, how can I actually parent being calm? Like, you know, we have the day-to-day stuff going on, right? Especially if we're single women, divorced women, so many of us now, right, who are bringing our children up on our own, um, who are doing 1,100 things. Like beforehand, it used to be living in the village, you know, the family used to raise the child. And that's what they say. It takes a village to raise a child. And these days, it's so fast-moving we don't have the support that we probably had in the, in the past. And how is it that we can stay calm in the eye of the storm? Like how can, does this work and why is it important? First of all, I want to say the anthropologists tell us that in the old days, way back, children unfortunately didn't always make it to adulthood. In fact, more children died when they were little than made it to grow up. And therefore, there were about nine adults to every child. So that's terrible news, except that it's good news if you're, if you're the mom and you're holding the baby and you're at the end of your rope, there is somebody to pass that baby to who loves that baby, right? And yeah. so, so when you say it takes a village, you're absolutely right that humans evolved at a time when there were no antibiotics and we didn't necessarily have good nutrition and there were accidents and, you know, there were more adults to children. And yeah. now we end up with one mom raising one child or two children or three children. Um, sometimes it's two parents, but regardless, it's not enough adults to handle the children. And we also don't live in tribes or even families often. We mm-hmm. live by ourselves with our children. And so you're totally right that the, we are not designed for the life that we live today. We're not. When I say not designed, we're not designed biologically for that life. We know We're designed for a more communal, tribal life. And so one thing that makes a big difference is actually trying to set up your life a little differently. And yet it's hard. You're you're going up against, you know, what everybody else is doing. And it can be very tricky to do that, to find that. But I think remembering that and holding that in your mind as as a way you'd like to live with your children means you're more likely to do things like, okay, you know, on Friday nights... I'll have people over to my house for dinner, you know, another family or two. And then on Saturday nights, we'll go over to their house for dinner. You know, maybe you can't do it during the week because it's just too complicated with work schedules and school schedules. But maybe on the weekends, you can do that or Sunday afternoon or whatever. Um, Figuring out ways to have a more communal life, I think, is actually very helpful. But I want to go back to your other part of your question. (laughs) How do you stay calm? And I guess the answer for you is... You don't. You don't stay calm. No one stays calm. It's impossible. We're human beings. That means, you know, um, someone said to me yesterday, I love this, life is like a river of feelings and stuff you have to get done. That's life, right? And so if life is a river of feelings, you're feeling happy and then you're feeling sad and then you're feeling worried and that, you know, you've got all these feelings going on. You're going to get upset. That's just the way life is. But, but when you're a parent, you actually have a responsibility not to just live out loud all that upset with your child, but instead 
to create an environment for your child where your child can thrive. And one of the things in that environment for your child is an adult who can notice when they're starting to get upset or worried or scared or angry or sad and can notice that feeling. Don't, don't stuff it. Don't deny it. Right. Cause then it's just not under conscious control, but it's still there with you. Right. When you, when you try to get rid of a feeling, you know what happens to it. You cut off your awareness of it, but it's mm-hmm. still there in your body. You're still going to act it out with your child. Unconscious. Yeah. Right. And then it's even worse because you go and have your tantrum, right? Because it's not conscious. You're not under conscious control. So yeah. when you notice you're having any feeling, whatever it is, you notice it. You acknowledge it. Maybe it's joy. That'd be great. Every day there should be a lot of joy. We often, we often cut that off too. I don't have time for joy. I have to get the kid out the door, right? Right. <laughs> and maybe it's annoyance, like, oh my God, my ex did not mail the check again, right? Maybe it's annoyance or even rage, right? Whatever it is. You notice it, you acknowledge it, and then you make a decision about whether to act on it. Joy, yes, let's act on it. Rage, not so much, right? And so you, you return yourself to calm. So you don't stay calm, but you, return, you notice and you say, okay, how can I get recentered here? And there are a lot of practices you can use, you, and we can talk about those, but you move yourself back into center and you say, okay, I'm really annoyed at my ex for not sending the check and I have to get the kid out the door. We're going to find a way to make this work. I'm getting recentered. I'm connecting with my child. I'm helping my child get ready, even though they don't want to. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm being responsible about my own feelings. That's what it means to be a peaceful parent, right? No one is a Zen master. And if they are, honestly, if you're a Zen master, you're probably not raising children and you're probably not listening to this podcast, right? <laughs> so... I say children are our Zen masters. They're the ones who are helping us to develop our full capacity for being fully present, fully present without going unconscious. Because when we just indulge ourselves in our tantrum, that's going unconscious, right? If we are fully present, you're not getting hijacked by your emotions. You always have like a little extra part of yourself, the observer part. Yes. So it's called this the observer self, right? And there are different names for it in different schools of psychology, but basically you could think of it as the observer self. You develop this through meditation. You develop it through reflection. So it's been proven that if you journal, if you write down your feelings and your behavior, you develop your reflective capacity and it develops that observer self more. And that's what keeps you from getting hijacked is the observer self. And it says, yeah, I'm feeling pretty annoyed right now, but I'm not going to act on that. I'm going to take a deep breath and I'm going to choose the most productive action here which isn't necessarily, even if you're annoyed at your child, it's not productive necessarily to start screaming at your child, right? What's, because if you do that, you're going to have a total meltdown. You're going to have a total power struggle. You're still not going to get out the door on time. Whereas if instead you take a deep breath and say, oh, my child must be having a hard time to be giving me such a hard time. I'm getting pretty annoyed. I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to get centered. I'm going to try to reconnect with my child, which might be all they need. But even if that's not all they need, I'm going to be able to understand more about what they need by connecting. And as you connect, you see that your child is maybe just wanting that connection with you, and that's why they were acting up. Or maybe they're really anxious about going to school because their best friend was out sick yesterday, and they're afraid he'll be out sick again today, and he's not there to play with, and no one will play with him at recess. Or maybe they're anxious because yesterday... The teacher called on them and they didn't know the answer and they were embarrassed. I mean, there could be any number of things, but 
as you begin to connect with your child and you say to them, you're having a hard time getting ready this morning. You seem a little bit worried about going to school. What's going on? Your child might tell you because you sound like you're listening. You're not just saying, get ready, stop playing around and get ready. You know, in which case your child's going to be like, no, I'm not going to do that. You can't boss me around. Right. And then it's all over. Forget it. You're just in a power struggle. Right. So the answer to your question about how we stay calm is we don't. Our job is to return ourselves to calm. And that's awfully hard to do when you're very annoyed, right? Or upset or scared, angry, sad. But if you practice it, if you practice the strategies, different strategies for different people, but we can talk about different ones. But if you practice those, then you'll be able to use them even at times of upset. And it will become more automatic to use them. Yeah, you know, I love that. And, and, and there's something in what you said that I wanted to kind of go back to, which was the sense of um, if they're having a hard time, could you elaborate on that in the sense that, because often when we're having a hard time, we don't see it. We just think they're being difficult. We just think they're being, you know, my, my, my little one's four years old. So, you know, when I ask him why he feels the way he does, a lot of the time he can't explain it. He just says, because, right? He's not in a, he doesn't have the capacity yet to kind of explain it to me or even know why, actually. The beauty of this, what I'm hearing is, is that when they're acting up, you can see that they're having a hard time. It's not personal. It's just that they're, they've gone into their own thought storm of their own thinking, you know, and, and, and I guess we can be compassionate towards that. But what about those moments? Like those moments where it looks to us like they're being super defiant. Like you've told them a thousand times not to do that thing and they look at you and then they do it anyway. Like, okay. Like from my point of view, it's like, how can they have, be having a hard time? As far as I'm concerned, he's being super defiant. What's, what's actually going on there? Well, this is a really great opportunity for us to stop, not just respond to the defiance and get hijacked by our rage about that, because that's what it is, our anger, but to instead back up a step and say, huh, wonder what's going on here. Why would my child who I love and who I just connected with so nicely in such a great morning together or evening together, why would my child look at me and be so defiant? What's going on? And the answer is always some version of the child has some feelings inside that they don't know what to do with and they're asking for your help. I say that defiance in specific is not a discipline problem. It's a relationship problem. It's a relationship problem. There's some way in which at that moment of defiance, your child is looking at you and saying, I'm not going to let you tell me what to do. I'm not going to cooperate. In fact, I know your rule is not to do this. I'm going to do it anyway. So why would the child do this? Well, maybe because they're scared and anxious. Often it's anxiety. So I've known, I, I had one mom whose son, every time it came time for him to go to his soccer practice, he would go out in the backyard and he would climb a tree so she couldn't get him down. So he would now what do I do about this defiance? I say, I think your son is showing you in very clear terms that he's completely unwilling to go to soccer. So the question is not how do you force him to go? The question is why is he so unwilling? Right? What's going on? Right? And it turned out it was a bad situation at soccer that she hadn't really realized. And there was some stuff going on that her son couldn't handle. And in, it, was, it was not abuse, but it was not good. And she was able to intervene and also to coach him to stand up for himself in a way that they were able to handle it, right? But let's say 
it's more simple than that. Your, your child just says to you, I know the rule is, oh, I'll give you another example, actually. Um, here's, a, here's one. There was just a power struggle. So I just, just last week, a dad um, was worried as his son was watering the plants at their house because it's a big watering pan, watering pitcher, and he was worried that his son would spill it. And his son kept saying, I can handle it, dad. I can handle it. I'm the expert on the plants in our house. I'm, uh, it's my job to do the plants. And he and his father had this big, big power struggle. And the mom, who's often in dispute with the father, says from the other room, oh, let him do it. Let him try it. And the father, sort of to get back at her, and also because he's angry that he feels embarrassed in front of his son, and also because his son has just been fighting with him, and his father's like, fills it all up to the brim, very full, too full, and says, okay, try it, gives it to the son. The son finally has won this, won this battle, right? The son takes the watering bucket, looks at his father, like, well, I won, but what am I holding? Like, ashes in my mouth. Like, it's not worth this because I may have won, but instead of winning my father's respect, which is what I was trying to get, my father is just like, okay, see, you can't do this. My father doesn't believe in me. The son took that watering can and he threw it on the floor. So there was water all over. Right? And the father said, what do I do about this defiance? How do I punish him? And my answer was, we need to back up three steps here. Why were you having a power struggle with your son about this to begin with? Why did you see yourself as his partner in figuring out how he could, you could do a win-win solution? How could he safely water the plants? Maybe fill it up halfway. Maybe get a different watering can that's smaller, a smaller pitcher, a cup, whatever it has to be. You know, it doesn't, why couldn't you find a win-win solution instead of needing to control what your son was doing and denying him? We often do this. We often over control and we deny our children their desire to develop mastery. His son was saying, please respect me. Let me try something new. Let me show you how I can handle this. Let me gain confidence in learning a new skill, right? But we often over control and we, we say no to that, right? And then there's a power struggle and then they just, they just don't. After that, there's a rupture in the relationship and they don't want to please us, right? So that's an example where defiance might come in. And then there's simply, sometimes children just need to cry. Yeah. They can't let out their emotions. So they don't know how to do that. So they pick a fight because those emotions feel so uncomfortable. Like it's just been a hard morning or I just spent time with dad overnight and over the weekend or over the last week and over a trip. And then I came back to you and I'm like full of all kinds of feelings and I don't know what to do. And I'm missing my dad, but I don't want to be disloyal and say that to you. And I don't even know how to articulate it. And it just is so hard for me and I don't know what to do. And I'm going to look right at you and do the thing you're not letting me do because I'm going to get in a fight with you. And then I'm going to have an opportunity to cry about all these feelings and, and you'll comfort me and it will make up and, and at least I'll feel better and more connected to you, right? So that comes out of the disconnection and the child's inability to explain what's going on with him, right, himself. Mm-hmm. But he, he picks a fight with you and tries to, to get those feelings. It, it's easier, you know, the best defense is a good offense, right? Yeah. That's <laughs> but when we're uncomfortable with our own feelings, we try to blame them. On someone else, we try to visit them on some, you know, the definition of violence is when we don't deal with our own pain, we always end up visiting it on someone else. And it's usually the people we're closest to. So that's true for parents. Very important. Have to work on our own stuff. But also it's true for children. 
because the child in this case who's feeling all that pain, he's going to, he doesn't know what to do with it. So he says, here, mom, take this, help me with this, right? And it's our job to help him so that in the future, he learns how to articulate it and he can process it himself and he won't have to hand it to his friend or his girlfriend or his boss or his whoever, right? His children. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I coach or I, I work with women, um, mainly mums who, um, who have their own businesses and who want to experience more work-life balance, whatever you want to call it. And um, often we have this conversation that a lot of the time their work ethic has actually got more to do with the fact that they don't want to feel. So they go, they throw themselves into their work and it's a way to escape their feelings or, you know, they'll have a bottle of wine or they'll have a coffee or, and it's a great way to not have to deal with the feelings that they have to sit with. And I think that's such a great point because for human beings in general, Mm. we are not taught growing up what feelings are for or how to deal with them. And here's what feelings are for. Feelings are for us to grow. Feelings are a signal. They're a signal of where we need to do some work, right? That's what they are. And so allowing ourselves to, to notice and to feel, and what's a feeling? A feeling is, it's a sensation in your body, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's where we feel the feeling. We feel emotions in our body, butterflies in your stomach, you know, a tightness in your throat when you're worried or you're scared or anxious about something, right? It's a sensation in your body. And once you are willing to sit with it and, and let yourself be uncomfortable because it's uncomfortable and you breathe into it and if you've got a trauma in your background, and all of us have little traumas, at least, if not big ones, you, you, it's really important that you hold that feeling, that sensation in your body with great love. That's the observer self. You're not just re-traumatizing yourself, right? By going back. If you were traumatized as a child by a parent who hit you, I'm not suggesting you sit there and you f- relive that trauma. Here's what I'm suggesting you do. Number one, summon up as much love as you can. Think of anything that makes you feel loved anything that makes you feel love in your heart for your child or for anyone else, surround yourself with love. And then, then invite your body to notice anything it's carrying. And don't get into the, if your body is like cringing, because you were hit when you were a child, let's say, if your body cringes like that, you don't have to get into the the storyline about, yes, that's when my father would drink and he would come after me. You don't have to get into the storyline. Just notice your body. And just notice it and say, I'm here, you're safe to your body. Seriously. And just just hold yourself with love. Notice that cringing. Just feel it and say, you're safe. It's okay. That's your antidote. Love is the antidote. It's always the antidote. It's the, it's the antidote to fear, right? It's the antidote to pain even. Um, pain is always resistance. So this cringing is a resistance, right? Whereas if you're love, you can say, okay, Yes, it was, it was helpful to resist back then, but right now I don't have to be walking around in resistance to life like this. I can actually be in life like this. And so, so I don't have to resist anymore. Love helps us to move out of pain, out of resistance into acceptance, right? And so if you sit with the feelings in your body, and I don't just mean to clear out your old baggage from the past, although that's essential and invaluable for all of us to do that work. I think every single day we have stuff to clear out. Every single day you get an email and you're like, oh my God, I forgot all about that. I have to get this done immediately, right? Oh my God, I'm so stressed out. Or or we get, our child gives us a hard time, you know, or we realize 
you know, how am I going to get that bill paid? You know, or, you know, um, there could be so many reasons. We have a health problem. I'm a little, a little worried about this. I keep, you know, or, or maybe our parent is, is getting older and is ill. There are so many things to worry about, right? And so as we go through our day, we, and they can be small things and they can be big things. As we go through our day, we are so busy, like handling the flow of life, the flow of emotions and the flow of stuff to be done that we stop feeling. We, we sort of numb ourselves out. And then to keep the feelings away, to keep ourselves numbed out, we have little addictions. We go get a coffee. We go get a treat, a sweet. We, we have two drinks at the end of the day. I mean, it's fine to have a glass of wine, but I'm just saying, if you're using it to numb yourself out, you'll know that, right? Um, I suggest that we all, every one of us, as many times during the day as we can, we just stop and we allow ourselves to feel whatever comes up. It's a basic mindfulness practice. And, you know, instead we get on our phones, we get on our devices, right? We're waiting for our child to pick our child up after school. Do we just notice, oh my God, that was that tense meeting I was just in, you know? No, we get on our phone and we're like, okay, numb yourself out with your phone, right? Get all those feelings away. And then when we try to have a nice evening with our child, what's happening? All those feelings have not been processed. So we're wound up tight. We can't just get down on the floor and play with our child because what will happen if we do? All those feelings will come up and swamp us, right? So that's a really important point because I know we talked about it before we got, when we started, the, I pressed the record button. And I know that it's, from what I've been reading, it's quite normal for, for, for many parents actually to find that process difficult, to actually sit and play with our children. I know that's a huge, has been a huge um, thing for me to want to avoid because there was also something else I could do um, until I realized I was... Everything else was more important because I didn't want to feel what I was feeling when I would sit with him on the floor. Now, what I've, you know, amazingly on your course, what, what you talk about is this special time, which has made such a huge difference to me and to Leo because I can go, right, it's a start. It's a start. Like, at least we can start here. And there's been a huge exploration around what are the kind of things I love to do with him as opposed to just sitting on the floor and playing with him, what are the things that he also enjoys? So getting physical is something that we both enjoy. So we go out and play football or we do a little bit of yoga together. You know, we do like, um, I take him up with my feet. And so I'm exploring what playing means to me. I love doing crafts. I love playing Lego. So I found my little um, pots of joy in terms of playing. And so at the beginning, it was this blanket license of no play. Somebody else can do that. I've got more, you know, I've got to run the household. I've got to do the cooking. I've got to do all of those things that in order to feed my son, but also to take care of him physically. Um, so at the end of the time, I just don't have that, that energy. So I'd love you to share a little bit more about the special time because I'm sure there are mums that are listening in going, okay, well, I've maybe got like four kids. How do I get to spend that connection time? Because of course, kids need connection. So yeah, I'm, uh, I'd am i love you to speak a little bit more about special time. So connection, we have now learned, is at the core of what children need to develop well. It's, you know, we used to think child psychology, children develop, and we talk about the child, but actually it's not in a vacuum. The child is developing in relationship to the environment. And for a young child, the environment is the parent, right? And what does the child need from the parent or from the environment? 
the child needs to feel safe. And to feel safe, the child needs to feel connected. That parent is going to be there for me no matter what. And if you have one child, it can still be hard to be there for that child no matter what, because you've got work and you've got um, your own stuff, whatever it is. And it's hard to be, to be there. But if you've got four children, it's even harder because your child looks at the other three children and says, huh, if tiger jumps out of the bushes, who's she going to save? Right? Is she actually available to me when I need her? So no child needs you 24-7, but they do need you when they need you. And our genetics, really, they go back to the Stone Age because genes evolve very slowly. So our genetics basically are, are of children who grew up in the Stone Age, and there were tigers. So your child doesn't really know there's no tiger in Madrid or wherever you are, right? So your child actually needs to know they're safe. So what they need to know from you is that you're available to help them if they need you. That's what they need to know. Um, And since you're busy with lots of other things, maybe other children, maybe other things, um, it's very important to find ways in your daily life to connect. So you strengthen that relationship, right? And the child knows, okay, she's there for me. me. She cares about me. She really values me. She's going to save my life if the tiger comes. She's there for me, right? And so one of the ways we do that is we make it a practice to accept our child no matter what they're expressing. So maybe they're expressing anger. Most parents will say, well, that wasn't appropriate. He was yelling. I sent him to his room. Well, actually, it was appropriate for him to tell you he was angry. And you can tell him a more appropriate way to talk about it, but you can't do it while he's angry, right? Because then he's triggered. You have to tell him later after he calms down and you have to model it for him. But when he's angry, he's telling you something that's important to him. Will you listen? Right. So that's one really important basic rule is your sort of 24 seven empathy. And I call that a preventive maintenance practice. Now, nobody is really empathic, empathic 24 <laughs> seven. <laughs> Mother Teresa, except actually a mother. She right? was a hot, she was a badass though. She was a badass. And she didn't have children of her own. I think if she'd had children of her own, she might have been different, right? We don't have to emulate that, right? We can be do the best we can. So I say just work on your ratio of good moments to bad moments, right? <laughs> be empathic more times than you were yesterday, and you'll work on your ratio. Okay, so that's one preventive maintenance. Another preventive maintenance is to build an into your life, right? And so one way to do that is routines. Like when you first, when your child first gets up in the morning, reconnect with them, Right? So that you're, you have a nice snuggle time. When you drop them at school, make sure you have a little goodbye connection. Make sure when, you know, you pick them up at the end of the day or you're reunited at the end of the day that there's a little ritual that is always a connection. You know, don't be like on your phone when they come in the door or when you pick them up, right? Make sure you have a good night ritual. So you have things throughout your day that are reconnection rituals. So that's, that's an, and you have rituals and, and routines that they expect during the day that have a connection component, right? And a third thing is to have time where you speak in their language to them, essentially. Mm. And that is what we call special time. That's what you asked about. So special time is making your love for your child tangible by sitting down with them and saying to them, I'm all yours. What would you like to do? You're in charge. And you turn your phone off. You just turn your phone off. You put it away. And your child's in charge. And you, and if they want to do something dangerous, you can try to find a way that it can be safe or you can say no, right? But you try to find a way for it to be safe, again, a win-win solution, right? And you, the child's in charge and you follow their lead, right? And what do children get out of that? They get that they matter to you. 
and that you value them and that you admire them. You're just sitting there pouring your love into them. And they love that time that they know they can count on this connection for you, with you. And if you have three other children, it's a challenge because you want one-on-one time with each child for them to feel valued. So what you do is you find a way to rotate through your children, right? And if some of them still sleep, that's great because you can do it at nap time when some of them are sleeping. That's good. At least some of them are out of the way. And then you find something for the other ones to do. And you can usually find something they love playing with that you can have them do. But one recommendation I make is let them listen to an audio book that they have headphones because the headphones are noise canceling. So they can't hear you laughing with their sister or brother. They're just on the headphones listening to the audio book. If they're not a kid who can sit still, give them some paper and markers, you know, water, uh, watercolors that can wash out. So, you know, they're not, they're, they're gonna, it's not going to stain your couch or whatever, but set them up with some, you know, give them a, what we call a cookie sheet, just a pan that they can use to c- contain the marker, put them on the floor, give them the markers, give them the, the paper and give them the headphones and let them listen while they draw you pictures of what's happening in the story. Right. And then you're in the next room. You can still hear them, but you're in the next room with their sibling, having time one-on-one time with their sibling. And you set the timer and it's only 15 minutes, but the, but the sibling get, or maybe it's 25 minutes if you can, but it's whatever time you can do while the other sibling is busy. And then you can switch off. And if they know they're going to get time with you, usually you can start with the youngest. And then once they have that time with you, they're more willing to give you up and let you, you know, spend time with their sibling while they have the, the time with the audiobook, as a for instance. So that's one way to do special time. And then I would add that you mentioned playing football or other kinds of roughhousing. I was listening things like empathy and um, routines and rituals to connect and special time. And I would add definitely laughter has to be on that list because laughter changes the body chemistry. It gets rid of the stress hormones and it also helps the two people who are laughing connect with each other at a heart level. So if you want to be connected with your child, laughter every day really matters. And if you want your child to be, if you want to get rid of your stresses of the day, yeah, you can sit with them as we discussed, but also you can laugh them off. And your child isn't going to just sit with the stresses of the day, but they will laugh them out or run them out, right? So laughter really matters. And so anything that gets your child laughing, you know, I if your child is acting up, I say, go over there, look them in the eye, summon up your warmest smile and all your love and say, hey, are you out of hugs again? Come here, you. And just grab your child, hug them, throw them up in the air, throw, put them on your back and give them a, a bucking bronco ride, whatever you need to do to get them laughing, right? And then toss them onto the couch and they'll be hysterical laughing and they'll be like, more, more, mommy, and let them climb on again and do it again. I mean, at some point you'll have to say, okay, I'm out of breath. I have to stop. Let's read a story together instead. But you'll find that you'll be so much closer and they'll act so much better for the rest of the evening. The laughter is so important. And then the final thing preventive maintenance wise that I would add is tears. Sometimes I mentioned this earlier, kids just need to cry. Sometimes we all just need to cry, Mm -hmm. right? And we are able to process things verbally sometimes like, oh, I was so upset when this happened. I was so worried. I was so sad. And we tell our best friend. And that helps us just, we've, it's been proven 
by hooking us up to all kinds of electrodes, that when we have those conversations, it's like writing in a journal. You're, the two sides of the brain are communicating with each other and we're integrating, right? And we're, we're, what we're finding as, we're, as we look at the brain is that talking about things helps us reflect on it, just like writing in a journal, having a compassionate witness, our friend helps us, we all need a witness, and we can work things through that way. But this capacity doesn't start really until children have more of a prefrontal cortex. Which is about six? Well, you know, it's not finished till 25. Okay. It, it <laughs> birth or before birth, but maybe it starts at two or three, right? But it's pretty rudimentary at four or five. Yes. So it's much better at six. And it's true that it's six or seven, really at six when the brain rewires, we gain much more capacity to for the prefrontal cortex and to sort of hold our emotions a little bit more um, from swamping us. So you're right. At six, there is a change for sure. Um, and at 12, there's another change where we become capable of more higher level thought, which is where you get to do algebra for the first time, really, right? Is that... The, <laughs> um, Unless you're a genius, but yeah. Yeah, most of the time, people have to be... I mean, all the good work in mathematics is done by people between the ages of 13 and 30. There's no exceptions to that. All the breakthroughs are made then. They oh, may take, oh, yeah. They may take the rest of their life to write it out, but it's all done. <laughs> that is best. And actually, a 15-year-old can think just as well as a 25-year-old. It's just that they don't have – the prefrontal cortex is not quite as developed in terms of um, the planning function or the sort of timeline function of – Oh, if I get really drunk now, I won't be able to drive the car home, <laughs> you know, that kind of, or if I dive off this cliff, what if the water is too shallow? You know, those kinds of questions a 16 year old might not really be thinking as well about. But in terms of doing, you know, quantum mechanics, you know, they actually have that capacity beginning at 13 or 14. It's amazing how the brain, it, it, you know, math is a young person's game, but it's not just math because they're more willing to think outside the box. They're not as, stuck in habitual patterns, you know, rest of us, well, I know this is how the world works. I've decided this a long time ago. So if <laughs> think of a new thing, right, that fits into that paradigm, they're willing to shift the paradigm, which is really important, right? So when the rest of us, unless we're having a problem, we may not shift our paradigm, right? Which is another reason why discomfort is a good thing. Discomfort is where we learn. Discomfort is where we notice our paradigm isn't working. Discomfort is where we let in new options, right? And I'm assuming that a lot of this is discomfort, as I said to you earlier on, you know, playing, sitting down and playing with Leo isn't easy for me at all. Like I get very uncomfortable. Comes from childhood, our own childhood, I'm assuming. Yes, yes. So I guess I would just say that we all have baggage from childhood. And if we haven't worked it through, we're going to visit it on our children. It's yes, we <laughs> And for you, it might be plain, and that's true for many people, because our parents mostly didn't play with us, right? Yeah. And they had a patient attitude toward play. But also, I think it's because we don't want to be uncomfortable. And the thing about play, as you know, I mean, you, you talk about joy, right? Joy and play are all about saying, I'm going to show up and be present in the moment. Whatever happens is okay. It will unfold from what's happening in this moment with this other person in the sense of play often, usually. What's that connection? What's happening between us? That's, I mean, falling in love couldn't happen if we had to be in control of it every moment, right? It's <laughs> <laughs> like falling in love all over again. And children are best at play before they're seven because their sense of time is different. 
they're more present. They aren't, they don't have the prefrontal cortex with the timeline. They don't think of time that way. They're present, right? We could all learn from that. And I think we, it's useful to have our brain develop further with a prefrontal cortex that has a sense of time. That's how we get our rent paid, you know, but, but it's also very important for us if we want to live fully to be able to be willing to be present and it takes practice and it takes courage because when you're present, guess what happens? All that old stuff you've been sort of sticking in your emotional backpack will come up to get processed. And that's what happens for many of us when we sit down to play. Yeah, you know, the two things that come to mind when you're speaking is the first thing that I kept on wanting to share was um, the maintenance side of it. Like one thing I, I really took away from the course was um, when you say if you can do something when you're ready, like, um, and that's been working a treat. Like for me personally with Leo, if he doesn't want to put a shoe on or if he doesn't want to um, do something I want him to do in that moment, I just say to him, well, you can do it when you're ready. And it gives space for me and it gives him such power to say, I'm ready now. I'll do it. I love that. Yes. And that has been a miracle. Like to me, that's been like this magic pill. (laughs) Beautiful. Yeah. Um, The power struggle, right? There's suddenly no power struggle. Yeah. And I give the, you can make the decision up to you, but it's going to happen. I'm not saying no. I'm just saying you can choose when it happens. And then kind of following on from that. And I guess is that that's where we started was, Okay, so here we are. They need connection. They don't know necessarily how to ask for it. They they do it in their own way and they can act up and so forth and so on. They're having a hard time. So how do we set limits without disciplining? Aha. So first of all, I just want to address the disciplining question because people people say, but of course children need discipline. Well, so let's just define our terms, right? So discipline used to mean, it came from the same root as the word disciple. A disciple, like the disciples of Christ, right? Who were the followers of Christ who learned from Christ and who taught the Christian teachings to other people, right? That's a disciple, someone who learns and someone who teaches. Um, So if we take discipline as meaning to learn and to teach, right? Then of course we would say children need discipline. But it turns out when you look that up in the dictionary, that meaning is archaic. It's no longer considered the current usage of the word. Now, the current usage of the word is to punish the child. We're assuming, we're making the assumption in our current culture that the only way for children to learn, the only way for us to teach is punishment. So, I, so I'm going to use discipline in the sense of punishment. Okay? okay, That's the current usage of the word. If we're talking about the best way to teach a child, we all know that the best way to teach a child is not punishment. If you're teaching a child to read, you don't smack them when they get the word wrong. If you're teaching a child two plus two equals four, you don't smack them when they say three, right? You're not, you know, you don't yell at them. You teach them and you make it as fun as you can because we know that's how children learn best when they're not on the defensive, when they're not feeling lectured, right? So if you're teaching, that's how you would teach. We know the best way for children to learn and it's definitely not punishment, right? So, so if you're disciplining, you're teaching children in the way they learn best. Okay, so now you said, how do you set limits without disciplining? Aha, without punishing. Well, let's talk about that. So if you're trying to set a limit for your child, let's presume, first of all, that they already know that's the limit, right? Because if you're just setting a limit for the first time and they don't know, yes, after we 
use the toilet, we always wash our hands. If a child doesn't know that, you don't, you teach them, you teach them that you don't, why would you make a big deal of it? You teach them, right? You're certainly not punishing them, right? You're setting a limit. Yes, you don't come out of the bathroom until you've washed your hands. You always wash your hands first, right? That's just what we do. And you teach them. So in what circumstances would it make sense when you set a limit to discipline or to punish? Well, I guess if they know the limit already and they've done the wrong thing. So your child comes to the dinner table, your child comes and sits down to eat, and you would ask them to wash their hands because they were playing outside and their hands were dirty, and you notice their hands are still dirty. And you say, hey, sweetheart, I see your hands are still dirty. We always wash our hands before we eat. Remember, let's go. You take them in and you wash their hands with them. That's all. So did you need to punish them to get them to wash their hands? No. In fact, if you'd chosen to punish them, what would have happened then? They would have gotten angry at you. They would have felt like, I'm so hungry and she's withholding my food. They would have felt like, she just likes to be bossy. She's always ordering me around. It would be like, she never understands. She's always, you know, they would be so, you would be setting up a power struggle. And if you won on the hand washing, believe me, you would lose on something else, right? They'd be obnoxious the entire dinner time. It's like, why would you ever need to punish the child at that moment? Now, maybe you would say to yourself, oh my God. I can't believe this. Every night this week, I've had to remind my child to wash their hands, even though they know, even though I reminded them before dinner, they still sat down at the table with dirty hands. So I I need to punish them to teach them a lesson. I still think you'd have all of those same negative reactions. I think it's our job to remind them, actually. And once it's a habit, your child will not change that habit. Now, you may want to give them extra motivation to do it. What, would, what kind of motivation would I mean? Well, maybe they need to know about germs, that if they don't wash their hands, there could be germs on their hands, mm-hmm. you know? Maybe they need to know about, um, oh, maybe they need, here's the thing, maybe extra motivation would be for your child to be in charge of something. All children want mastery. All children like to be in charge of themselves. To say to your child, what are the things you need to do before we eat? And your child's like, um, clean out my toys? Yeah. And wash your hands too, right? You have two things that you're always in charge of before we eat. Which one do you want to do first? Right? Like so that you're giving your child some control instead of them just feeling ordered around. And then your child has, gets some benefit out of washing their hands besides clean hands. They get this feeling like I'm in charge of my own hands. Or maybe you buy a soap with your child when you're in the store that they love the smell of. And that's, that. that's a, a different, we've all had the pleasure of, oh, my hand smells so good from that soap, right? We've all had that pleasure. Why would your child not like that pleasure, right? There's some way, your ch- or maybe there's a younger child too. You have two children and your older child really likes to feel like they get to teach the younger one how to wash their hands and help them because then they're the big sister or brother, right? And they can help the little one climb up on the stool. Maybe that's what they get out of it. You want them to have something they get out of it in addition to just doing what you want, right? Sometimes it's enough that it's just what you want. But if it's something they're resistant to and they're not seeming to have enough motivation, you can figure out a way to give them a motivation. It could even be as soon as you wash your hands, then we get to sit down and sing the blessing that you love to lead us in, right? Whatever it is. So I guess what I'm saying is when you use punishment, discipline, as a motivation, inevitably your child reacts badly. When you figure out something that that helps your child feel good, that meets a basic human need for recognition or control or a good smell or mastery or to be 
you know, the big helper to the big, to the little sister or brother, those things, then your child has an extra reason to do it. They're going to do it and it's going to become a habit and they're going to always wash their hands before they sit down. Yeah. You know, while you're talking about this, there's something that comes to mind and it's very specific. And it's something I've been wanting to ask you actually is the whole thing around eating. Like it's really interesting because I know that Leo, for example, my little one, this vegetable thing, like he, <laughs> I have to hide the vegetables. He can, he does have them in soup, um, but he won't, anything green is just like, he won't do it. And then there are times that I've given him food that he loves. And then there are other times that same meal, he won't, he won't, he'll say he doesn't like it. Now I'd love to know what's going on there. Like, is it the same thing? Is it literally like he's got some big emotions there right then? And, and it is, no. I, think it's, I don't, unless you're in the middle of a power struggle. If you're in the middle of a power no, usually not actually. I don't think so. So here's what I think. First of all, um, one thing is that the taste buds are not fully, um, they change over time. Hmm. And so little ones' taste buds are, are geared to keep them alive, right? <laughs> and little ones don't have a very big appetite. So it's, they're geared to sweeter things. As they get older, their, their taste buds become more um, sophisticated. They can handle a broader range of tastes that they like. They begin to like the taste of broccoli and kale and more slightly bitter things, right? Um, so, but when they're little, they like sweets and sometimes saltiness because those are the things more likely to keep them alive. But remember, again, when they were developing, when we were developing our human genome way back, so, so the answer is that over time they will find food of all kinds more interesting. And in the meantime, hiding the food is not, the, the vegetables is not a problem, right? <laughs> not only that, very quickly, when I was in China, I had a big aha moment about this because I was saying to the Chinese parents, you know, so like if your child doesn't want to eat their vegetables and they said, we've never had a child not eat their vegetables. And I realized that in China, the vegetables are delicious. They're cooked beautifully. They have sauces. In the United States, we sort of put the sauce on the meat or the chicken or whatever and then we just expect them to eat steamed broccoli. Well, like, why not make the broccoli taste better the way that Chinese cooks do, right? And your child might be more willing to eat the broccoli. So I would also say it's sort of like hiding the food in the casserole or the soup or whatever. Yeah, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much, Laura. It's It's been absolutely amazing, as always, to, to listen to you, your, your wisdom and your knowledge. Um, if somebody wants to contact you, how can they do that? My website is AHA parenting, like those aha moments, moments. A, A-H-A parenting, P-A-R-E-N-T-I-N-G dot com. Wonderful. Um, and yeah, for those of you that would love to know more about her work and you're, you already know me and you're on my, on my, in my tribe, then just look out for some emails I'll be sending out shortly about this podcast, but also about the courses that she runs and everything else that she's up to. So thank you so much for coming on and it's been a wonderful joy to have you. Thank you. Pleasure, Marina. Take care. And there you have it. Another wonderful episode of The Joy of Being. If you loved what you heard here today and it's been helpful, why not subscribe or share the podcast with others? And if you're curious as to how you can experience more joy in your life and feel carefree, then I invite you to download your Joy Catalyst Scorecard at www.marinapearson.com slash scorecard, which will help you identify the joy gaps and what you can do to fill them. And remember, you can find me on Instagram at Marina Pearson or my Facebook group, The Joy of Being. So until next week's episode, remember, you are the joy you seek. <laughs>